Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigandau quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, Fight fans. It is Tuesday, July 31st, and this is the Fistionados podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. The email is fistianatos at yahoo.com or follow me on Twitter at fistianatospod. A lot to go over this episode. Let's get right into it. <clears throat> on Saturday, July 21st, Alexander Usyk wins by a wide unanimous decision over Murat Gassiev to win the Cruiserweight World Boxing Super Series title. More on this later because I'm going to do my deep dive on the WBSS, what happened this year and what it means going forward, but let's keep going with the look back at at the previous two weeks. Also, on July 21st, HBO returned to boxing with Jaime Munguia winning a unanimous decision over Liam Smith and Alberto Machado winning a unanimous decision over Rafael Mensa. The night averages 777,000 viewers, peaking at 827,000 viewers. Undercard averages 665,000, peaking at 762. Considering the circumstances for HBO, this is actually a pretty good number. They hadn't televised a fight in about two months, and even though Munguia had a breakout performance against Saddam Ali earlier this year, This is only his second appearance on HBO or any higher level TV stage for that matter. I want want to pause here and touch on this just a little bit more because I actually felt this card in a weird way is a microcosm for HBO's boxing programming over like the last 18 months. It represents a lot of the good, a lot of the bad, and, and like the frustrating viewer experience for some people. Let's start with the reported fight purses for the card. Now, no one expects that HBO would come back after a long layoff with a big-time world championship boxing fight with big-name fighters. Like They were off the air for a long time, and no one should believe the fight purses reported in the state athletic commissions, You know, especially those of foreign fighters. But these numbers do tell a story. Mungia made a reported 200K, Smith 75K, <clears throat> Machado 100K, and Mensa 35K. This alone perfectly 
sums up the budget issues that HBO has had over the last two years. Like I said, these are all foreign fighters, so I guarantee these salaries aren't 100% accurate. Like Smith in particular, I'm sure he probably made you know, a couple hundred grand or he wouldn't have even taken the fight because he can earn decent money in the UK. But this is way less than $500,000 in total reported salaries for all fighters on the card. Like the takeaways from this, just like let's look at the low salaries and how cheap the card was. Like that's why we got the card. Munguia might have actually only made $200,000 total for the fight because HBO probably had an option on him when he took the Saddam Ali fight. So HBO essentially knew they could get him back on the network for cheap, and that's why we saw the card. The same thing goes for Machado. To make the fight against Corrales last fall and give him an opportunity, Machado probably had to give an option like this. Like, maybe he made a little bit more than 100 k but maybe he didn't. I don't know. All of this frugal matchmaking, though, affects the viewing experience. The Machado-Mensa, like, that's a classic example of this. Had Mensa made more money, we might have actually seen the fight ended earlier, which is clearly what should have happened. Like, we probably saw seven or eight rounds of boxing that we didn't need to see because we clearly knew who was the better fighter, and Mensa might have even fought 11 rounds with a concussion, potentially getting lasting damage. We don't know because he had a new corner who wasn't about to take him out of his first and likely only opportunity in the United States. But back to my earlier point, the bigger issue here is that if the budget had been bigger for that undercard B-side, we might have actually seen a competitive fight. It just would have been from a different fighter with a better resume. Guys like Mensa used to have to come in and prove themselves on Friday night fights before they got a chance like this. None of us really learned anything about Machado, and that's a shame. Like He looked like he made pretty big gains with Freddie, Ro- <coughs> with Freddie Roach over the last few months. Now, the main event ended up being a pretty good fight, but it was actually built in the way that Showtime used to make big fights. Munguia had what I'm assuming was a contractual obligation, and Smith wanted the title shot. You know, HBO isn't invested in that division at all. I've talked about this before, but part of that is that ripple effect for when there isn't a big, grand plan for matchmaking. And what I'm referring to is the reason we saw this fight is because Miguel Cotto wanted a farewell fight last fall, and in a fight where Cotto was a 10-to-1 favorite, he hurt his arm, gave Saddam Ali an opportunity, and now we have Jaime Munguia. And look, Jaime Munguia may eventually be a star, but to have to listen to the HBO commentators talk about him and then seeing his technique in the ring, there is a disconnect right now at least. Munguia needs a lot more seasoning before he goes against the division's elite. He needs more of these fights against like the Liam Smiths of the world where we can learn a lot, or he can learn a lot. You know, finally on this fight, we look at the rating and it tells you a lot. HBO didn't get that kind of rating just because it has more viewers than Showtime. While core fans may understand that Showtime is putting on a better product right now, there's still lots of casual viewers that don't understand the point yet that Showtime's doing that. They just tune into HBO assuming that HBO is putting the best product on the air. Like That is built-in brand equity right there. It is eroding 
because you could make a case that five or ten years ago the rating would have been even better. But they're still drawing really solid viewership for a fight that didn't contain any established fighters. HBO, in fact, drew a better rating than Showtime did a week later. And to that point, on Saturday, July 28th, we have Mikey Garcia winning by unanimous decision over Robert Easter. Luis Ortiz with KO2 over Robzan Kojanu. And then Mario Barrios... KO8 over Jose Roman. The entire show does an average of 680,000 viewers, peaking at 725,000 viewers. One note, the night did face competition from a really good UFC on Fox card that actually did the worst overnight rating ever by a UFC on Fox card. It drew under 1.7 million viewers. And a side note here. To tie a bow on what I was talking about last episode with the potential for live programming on Fox on Saturday night, the sort of yet-to-be-claimed night for them with their new strategy, this actually got a .6 rating in adults 18 to 49, which, believe it or not, led the ratings in that age group for Saturday night. That was your leader. That led the ratings. You know, other shows did do over 2 million viewers, but not in the audience that matters in a much older demographic. So that pathetic audience led the ratings. Before I even get to the Showtime card, this is a great example of what happens when a network stops caring about promoting certain types of programming. Marketing and promotions matter. And I don't even really blame Fox for stopping to care about this, since right now they are just filling out contractual obligations. But this is an abysmal, abysmal number. On to the Showtime card. This was an entertaining card, and Mikey Garcia looked really strong in sort of figuring out Raul Easter. It was actually a pretty close fight for me through the first few rounds, and I was impressed how Easter came back from the knockdown, at least like early on for a round or two. But ultimately, Garcia pulls away, looks really good in doing so, and the big question is what happens next. Folks, Mikey Garcia keeps calling out Errol Spence, and he might be the only person who actually wants that fight, but Showtime is not talking about this as a real pay-per-view fight. This, in my opinion, is a garbage fight. And what I mean by that is while it is two main fighters who are both really good, no one else is calling for this fight, and I think most reasonable fans want to see these guys actually make the great fights out there in their own divisions. I want to see Garcia fight Lomachenko or even Linares before I see him dare to be great and go up two weight classes. And Spence, there is a lot of unfinished business at welterweight in the PBC universe, makeable fights. I've said this before, Errol Spence certainly passes the eye test, but the only high-level in-ring tests he's passed so far are Kell Brook and Lamont Peterson. I could understand this if the PBC had no other options. But that's just not the case here, and more on that later in the pod. The other problem with a fight like this is it falls into one of two categories. One, it's a Showtime pay-per-view that the fans end up paying $70 for, which at best isn't great, especially with the audiences that they're drawing on Showtime. How can you expect them to get over 300,000 pay-per-view buys? Like, neither guy right now breaks 800,000 viewers on regular Showtime, basically. But two, and what might even be worse is if they actually make this fight and put it on Showtime. 
because at that point, Showtime's boxing budget isn't going up at all, and they're using a large percentage of it to make a fight like this with what I would deem as essentially a predetermined outcome. As fans, it's up to you to police networks from making these kind of fights. They will get it made if there's a market for them. And on that note, there is one more element of this that needs to be addressed, which is the notion that we can't make Loma Garcia or Spence Crawford because of the top rank relationship with the PBC, especially as it relates to Garcia. This is a complicated issue, but let me bottom line it for everyone. If both fighters want the fight, and if there's a strong market for the fight, then it will get made regardless of the network and promotional entanglements. It's really that simple. Now let's focus on what you, the fans, can control, and that's the market for the fight. Plain and simple, if you are vocal about it, and this can be on social media where I encourage you to be respectful but strong in your opinions to reporters, promotional companies, and network networks, then that counts. It's like, it's like voting in a local election. Like You actually have a voice in that, and you should use your voice. Like, if you buy Spence Garcia on pay-per-view, then trust me, Showtime will pull that move again. They'll do it again to you if you'll buy it. But if you don't, and you tell them you'd rather see other fights, that's how you stop it. I think it's really easy to say, oh, my voice doesn't matter, but trust me, it does. Like, you'd be shocked as to how many reasonable, respectful people there are on social media who regular voice this, their opinions this way, and, and it's a big factor. Like a fight, I know, especially on Twitter, it has the reputation of being like a really sort of dark place, you know, where people say ridiculous stuff. And it has that reputation for a reason. But if enough fans, especially with reasonable thought processes, voice their opinions to reporters, like that's a great sample right there. It is a big factor, though, trust me. And a fight like this would need big paydays to get done. So Showtime would really need to hit a certain number of pay-per-view buys. And if you don't buy it, voting with your wallet, like I said earlier, that's what counts the most. Showtime listens closely here because the whole reason that this is going to pay-per-view is because they don't have the budget to put it on the network. So two other fights to talk about quickly from Saturday the 28th. One is Dillian White's decision win over Joseph Parker. This, in my opinion, should have been an ESPN Plus card where maybe they just picked up the UK feed or something like that. Like Top Rank has an agreement to co-promote Joseph Parker, and I know that they thought he'd be fighting Brian Jennings in mid-August instead of fighting Dillian White, but that shouldn't have prevented ESPN Plus from picking up this card. HBO and Showtime should not be expected to pick up a foreign fight like this. Like They both lost out in the Anthony Joshua sweepstakes to DAZN. So why would they do an afternoon broadcast of a fight that probably leads to nothing for them? Like HBO in general feels like they're probably going to be out of the heavyweight business completely because they've really only dabbled in an effort to get Anthony Joshua. And more on Showtime and what they're doing at heavyweight in a bit. But back to my original point here. So far... ESPN Plus has done a great job of picking up foreign fights that mean a great deal to hardcore fans, and I just think they missed an opportunity here. ESPN Plus that weekend also televised Masayuki Ito, and he had a decision win over Christopher Diaz in what was a pretty entertaining fight, 
Um, I thought it was interesting that they sent Osuna, Timothy Bradley, and Kriegel down to Florida for the fight. It's like, I thought it was a nice bonus that they did the fight, but I'm just not sure why they put it up against a high-profile Showtime card. It really wasn't a fight that moved the needle, especially if you didn't know it. Like, if you didn't know it was a pretty exciting fight before you started watching it, why would you watch it? Like, none of those guys have names, and there was no buildup to that fight at all. One more news item here before I do the deep dive. And there's a lot going on in the world of Deontay Wilder. There seems to be both a potential offer to fight Dillian White in the UK for somewhere between 7 or $8 million, which would likely be on DAZN. And then there's a potential U.S.-based pay-per-view fight against Tyson Fury that would be on Showtime pay-per-view. Now listen, if I'm Showtime, I'm starting to get worried here. Like They've put a lot into Deontay Wilder, and they will expect to be rewarded with his biggest fights. I mean, even if I'm Al Heyman, I might start to get worried a little bit. Like at some point, Deontay's team has a responsibility to see to a responsibility to him to say, like, look, like eight million bucks is life changing money, and I have to advise you to take that fight. Like, especially if he wins, he'll make a lot more in the AJ fight. I mean, maybe it doesn't give him any leverage, but he's going to make a big payday there. I don't know what the guaranteed payday would be for Wilder against Fury, but there are obvious red flags with that. Showtime doesn't want to hear this because if Wilder takes the white fight, there's a likely scenario where we see him more on DAZN in the coming year than we do on Showtime, which I'm sure they would hate. But a Tyson Fury, like he brings so many questions for all parties involved including the most important question, will will he actually show up to the fight? Because in his last big world title fight, he didn't. And Deontay Wilder's been burned before. Like, remember, he was supposed to get paid like five million bucks to fight Povetkin in Russia, and he still doesn't have that money based on some weird, complicated legal stuff that I'm not really qualified to talk about. But the bottom line is, like, if I was him and I don't have that five million bucks, like, that matters. This time, Showtime would be on the hook and the reporter that broke the story, Mike Coppinger, estimated the fight would do 150 to 200,000 pay-per-view buys in the U.S., which I actually don't think is that far off. You know, remember, Showtime is already talking about the Spence Garcia fight going to pay-per-view. So this would be two lower-profile pay-per-view fights towards the end of this year. And this one is the real risky one because I'm sure to keep Wilder in the fold there would also have to be a big guaranteed amount of money going his way. And these economics are already not looking great before you even factor in that Tyson Fury is involved in the fight and has yet to prove in the last two years that he will actually take a big fight seriously and participate in a big fight. That would be a catastrophic financial loss for Showtime if Wilder got a big guarantee and Fury didn't make the fight happen for some reason it would probably have serious consequences for their fight budget next year. A gentle reminder here, folks, when Floyd was doing those fights with $30 million guarantees and not doing the Canelos or the Pacquiao's or the McGregor's of the world, Showtime was putting on less fights on the network, likely because Floyd's fights lost a lot of money and ate into their budget. If you're a boxing network and you put on a pay-per-view 
and the pay-per-view loses money, but you guaranteed the fighter certain amounts. I'm not talking about the promotional companies. I'm talking about HBO or Showtime guaranteed amounts of money. That bites them. It comes out of their budget. And look, also actually one more thing. While we're on news items that Showtime should be worried about, keep an eye on the Les Moonves situation at CBS. For those not aware, Ronan Farrow did an article for The New Yorker focused on Les Moonves. The last time Farrow did an article like this, it was the article on Harvey Weinstein. And these are the articles that have been detailing sexual harassment in work environments. These are blockbusters. Weinstein will likely end up going to jail and has already lost his entire empire. They basically did a fire sale on his company and there's nothing left. The Moonves article does not have the same level of accusations, but let's be real. If you read it, Moonves is probably not going to last long in charge of CBS. He's also a big boxing fan, and he's been a champion for Showtime televising the sport. And he's essentially responsible for brokering the initial talks of the Mayweather-Pacquiao deal to get that done. And he's been really helpful in setting up Showtime's best fights on CBS to get big audiences. If he's eventually out, there's almost no chance that the next person in charge will be as big of a fight fan as him. And I don't want to suggest that Showtime would stop televising boxing if there's a new person in charge. I don't think that's the case. But what you might see is what you're seeing right now at HBO, where there's a product. It's sort of a product of the top brass not caring as much. And maybe when budget cuts come one way or the other, it affects the boxing budget first. The bottom line, if he's out, there will be big question marks for Showtime's boxing budget at a time when they've taken over as the number one network and face a real challenge from DAZN to keep their top talent. For the deep dive this week, I wanted to take a closer look at what the World Boxing Super Series has done in its first season and what some of the ramifications are. Before I even start, I've shouted out people like Kurt Emhoff and others in the past who've talked about this a lot, but I just want to say like I'm now a convert, and I think they are setting the, the model for how to do these types of tournaments. I want to start just by stating the obvious. The World Boxing Super Series was an ambitious idea to try to do without a U.S. TV network. And while there might be some real issues with the way the first season has gone, I think you can end up saying that overall it was a tremendous success. For those not aware, the World Boxing Super Series took two divisions, cruiserweight and super middleweight, which is 168 pounds, and it put on a tournament in each division that took place over a relatively short period of time. Each weight division had four seated fighters, and they got to pick their first round opponents. It was three rounds, basically. They ran the first round in September, October. They did the semis in February, and then they did the finals for the Super... Well, the finals for the Super Bowl class will be in September. Um, and obviously, I discussed the results of the finals for Cruiserweight. So even despite the injuries that delayed both tournaments, which caused more issues to be fair at Super Middleweight than it did at Cruiserweight, both will end within a year of the start. Both will crown an established star and champion in divisions that, quite frankly, needed some clarity. And both champions will have logical next steps in their career, which 
had really been a big criticism from a lot of people, including yours truly, as to how this would play out. So on that note, let's focus on cruiserweight, since it is the best example of how the WBSSS, uh, the WBSS functioned like a true league and did what it was supposed to do. We have a clear unified champion, is Alexander Usyk, who is now recognized as a new star with some really logical next steps in front of him. Usyk fought three times in a year, so more than established stars are doing in the U.S., but not anything overly crazy. He beat Marco Huck by TKO in the first, you know, in the in the first round of the tournament. He beat Maris Bradis by majority decision in the second round, and that was an action-packed fight. And then he won a dominant unanimous decision over Murakasiev in the finals to unify all of the titles, all of them. And here's the thing. I don't think any of the other participants in the tournament really lost anything in stature. Gassiev definitely got outboxed in the finals, but he was in a fight of the year candidate against Dortikos in the semis, and he'll be expected to bounce back in a major way. Bredis certainly has no shame in losing to Usyk, and he's already fought since then. In fact, I'd actually love to hear if any of the guys that actually lost in the first round suffered at all in their careers. If anything, it raised all of their profiles, and I, for one, want to watch all of their next fights against any kind of high-level opponent. And this is all in direct contrast to how Usyk was matched up when he was on HBO, where he had two opponents that weren't even invited to this tournament, sort of both of which had awkward styles. And like I mentioned above, coming out of the tournament, one of the biggest questions is what would happen to the winner? But right now, Usyk doesn't lack for lucrative options at all. Usyk and Tony Ballou have already been going back and forth about fighting each other, and that would be a big fight in the UK, probably on pay-per-view. So Usyk would be in a major fight against a legit opponent that he could probably use as a springboard to enter the heavyweight division if he wants. There are plenty of interesting heavyweight fights out there for him, too. I, for one, would love to see him fight Deontay Wilder because they're not actually that far apart in size. It's a great stylistic matchup. And most importantly, Usyk would have had no prayer of being involved in a fight like that if it weren't for the WBSS. That would be a better fight to me than Tyson Fury for Deontay Wilder, to be perfectly honest. Even if Usyk doesn't want to go to heavyweight, how about headlining a card in the U.S. at cruiserweight against Andre Ward? You'd have to think that's a card DAZN could make instead of putting it on what would probably be a lower-level pay-per-view. It's a perfect fight for one of Eddie's quote-unquote massive four cards because Hardcore fans would thank him for not having to pay 70 bucks for it. Like, that's a perfect anchor to one of those cards. In another positive note for the World Boxing Super Series, if you weren't in the tournament, you suffered. I think at Cruiserweight, this is obvious. So, like, just because of how little exposure these fighters had in the States, like, let's look at Super Middleweight. Zerto Ramirez is Exhibit A on this. His ratings have gone progressively down on ESPN, mostly because of a dearth of competition out there for him. Think it's just him? Like, no, like, look at David Benavides as well. Like, at least Zerto is headlining cards, but Benavides is stuck being the third undercard on a Danny Garcia, Brandon Rios card in his last fight. His last two fights have been against Ronald Gavril, and he's supposed to be fighting Anthony Durrell in December or in September. While both Zerto and Benavides are young and developing, 
they also both have titles, and any of the seeded fighters in the tournament would have been much better opportunities and bigger fights for them. Let's look at the biggest questions that have played the tournament. Why didn't US TV networks get involved? This has been one of the biggest talking points about the entire tournament, and there's no like hot take here on why this has been the case. If you look at the, all the factors involved from the very beginning, it's understandable why networks didn't get involved. But towards the end, this was a travesty. And here's what I mean by all that. If you're HBO or Showtime, or even ESPN in the pre-ESPN Plus days, a tournament like this has a lot of question marks. It's never been done successfully in this short period of time. There were a lot of foreign fighters involved, and for European-based fights, HBO and Showtime need to make major concessions in their overall planning. For the first round of the tournament especially, you'd have had to commit to four weekends in a short period of time where there's lots of afternoon fights. Like To a core fight fan, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Remember, though, HBO and Showtime still operate in the old universe of having a linear channel to run where everything has slotted times. HBO and Showtime usually like to replay their fights, and how would you work that kind of thing? Do you just show the main event and not the undercards? Like, let's say if you're HBO and you have a fight on later that night that's Boxing After Dark or World Championship Boxing, do you show the World Boxing Super Series first? What if there's like a, a movie of the week, which is usually a blockbuster movie that starts at 8 p.m.? What if that runs late and you have another scheduled card? Like you're starting at 10.30 p.m. Eastern. You've already had a World Boxing Super Series main event replay on from earlier in the day, then an undercard, and then a main event. Like that could easily put your main, ev main event starting well after midnight. On that note, how does branding play into it? I mean, ESPN essentially said publicly that they were going to have issues explaining all of this to casual audiences. And they weren't alone either. Like, how do you explain top-ranked boxing on ESPN is bringing you the World Boxing Super Series, even though no top-ranked fighter is fighting in the tournament? Same thing with Showtime and the PBC. And look, again, to core fight fans, like, I know this is kind of ridiculous. You just want to watch the fights. But you have to remember this kind of thing is a big deal. Like I mentioned above, there's a reason HBO still outdraws Showtime, and it's years and years of brand equity. This means a lot to casual fans of the sport who don't follow the sport as closely, and they just think to themselves, oh, if it's on HBO, it must be good. Like This type of branding is taken very serious at the networks, and it should be. In the long run as core fans, you should take it serious as well, because if there are more casual fans of boxing, then there's more money in the sport and better options for you to watch, basically. You know, finally, and I don't really know if this qualifies as an argument not to televise it, but there was a questionable decision to hire Richard Schaefer to get the TV rights in the United States. From my understanding, and this is not a scoop, like, it's kind of been reported at this point, he asked for way too much money early in the game and was very difficult to deal with. Combine that with his poor relationships on the way out the door at Golden Boy, who maintained significant influence at HBO, and it makes the whole thing tough. Like, To be fair to the World Boxing Super Series, they did get the audience network to televise the first round. It's, how would I even say it? So, that even was kind of a bad deal. It's like, 
I call this, I have a phrase, I say it's neither fish nor fowl. And if the audience network would have committed, here's what I mean by that. If, if the audience network would have committed to the entire tournament, I think core fans like myself included really would have done everything that they needed to do to watch the fights. But the audience network only committed the first round. Like that's not the definition of planting your flag and it can work against you. And it really means that people like me essentially didn't watch the first round of the fight and watch the semis. Okay. Well, those are some decent arguments for not televising the first round. But why didn't anyone else televise the semis or the finals? And what happened where Cloud TV came in and gave us the finals for Cruiserweight on pay-per-view? The semis were all really good fights. I mean, especially in the Cruiserweight division. And it's really a travesty that none of them were televised on a major network in the United States. I think you can really criticize all parties for not getting a deal done. Like, there is tons of blame to go around here. First, let's look at HBO. They've televised Usyk fights before, and they have a lot of investment, you know, at a, the weight class right below super middleweight. So there shouldn't have been an impediment here. But no, it didn't happen. You know, again, maybe Golden Boy told HBO not to televise them because of Schaefer. I don't know. Maybe. It's a rumor. It's a believable one. But quite ironically, if HBO had a bigger budget this year, then maybe Golden Boy wouldn't have had the gumption to ask HBO not to show the fights, and HBO would have felt more empowered to do what they wanted. You know, because you, you'd think that fights like this are exactly what you'd want to do when you're having budget issues like HBO is having. These are great fights that would be relatively cheap to get. But they didn't do it. Showtime. They could have definitely had... Like, a great home for this. I mean, they have a precedent of doing lots of European afternoon fights on, on their Facebook page. They also clearly have the budget to afford them, and they're even invested in the 168-pound division. Schaefer still promotes fights on Showtime. And you have to think that given the relationship with Espinosa, he could have gotten something done. But no. I don't know whether Al Heyman killed it behind closed doors. You know, we'll never know. Showtime doesn't have it. ESPN, but I got their stance before they had ESPN Plus, and honestly, I'm not sure what they aired on in that exact time frame for the semis. I mean, it really doesn't matter because the semis were in February where there was a lot of different in-season sports that ESPN and ESPN2 probably had on, but with ESPN Plus, they should have televised the finals for sure. Like, should, might even not... That might not even be a strong enough word. Like It's almost blatant disregard for the core fans that ESPN Plus has spent a lot of time and money courting so far. They, they, definitely, they needed to get that. And that brings me to cloud TV. What happened there, really, what, what the hell happened there? I mean, on one hand, I'm... Absolutely, I absolutely support the notion that a fight like this is on what's really a $10 pay-per-view instead of a $70 pay-per-view. I mean, I'm in on a $10 pay-per-view. Like, that's, especially for a fight like this, I'm in on it. But, and, and, and even to that point, like, look, you basically had a $15 pay-per-view on HBO later that night because if boxing is all you watch on HBO, like, that was your one boxing card for the month of July, 
again, I'm also an outlier on this. I didn't actually watch the fight live. Like I have a wife and a young child. I did not want to hold my family hostage to European boxing times. Like, so I just avoided social media and I lived my life, but cloud TV's playback function didn't work when I got home. So I had to watch the fight on a Russian YouTube stream. And while I was trying to get their playback to work, I was also able to take a much longer look at what cloud TV had to offer in terms of their programming. Leaving my personal politics aside here, boxing tends to over-index with Hispanic and African-American audiences. It also does very well with demos like Southeast Asian audiences and even, and I guess this is just for lack of a better term, with white audiences, it tends to do better with white audiences in urban areas. You know, normally marketers don't look at these types of demos in terms of pure politics, but if you haven't noticed a pattern here, that is pretty much the backbone of the Democratic Party. While there are definitely Republicans who like boxing and, you know, really any network would be foolish in not taking these demos into consideration if their other programming is extremely one-sided on that political landscape. I really want to emphasize that. Cloud TV's programming base is exactly that. And it seems to be the complete opposite of the boxing fan base. They basically feature Glenn Beck and Infowars with Alex Jones and a lot of other channels that lean towards fringe right-wing politics. Now, maybe short-term they made some money on this deal, but how can you expect to be how can you expect boxing to be a long-term play when the rest of your audience, the rest of your programming, shows no potential to cross over with, that audience, with the boxing audience at all? Like, how can you possibly expect that? The World Boxing Super Series also here, I mean, come on. They really have to shoulder some of the blame for this. This is like, for this thing to work going forward, you really need to have an audience base in the U.S., and giving Cloud TV the rights to this fight should a blatant disregard for the U.S. audience here. That brings me to a few other questions. Like, will the dollars ever get big enough that you can do this in the United States in a glamour division or with true superstars? And that part of this gets complicated. The World Boxing Super Series was very strategic in the first two years by picking weight classes that offered great talent but not necessarily a big dollar fighter. And that's okay for now because at least they got something sustainable going. To make true inroads though, they're going to have to eventually make it so they can figure this thing out at welterweight, middleweight, or heavyweight. Which right now, those are the divisions where you can really get paid. We might be a few years away from that, but I think it needs to happen if it's gonna be the model moving forward. You know, if that's the case, then no one will care about the branding elements and the networks. They can figure all the details out because what the World Boxing Super Series has done really well is offer the structure to certain weight classes that's where it's created a star. And it's created a star that doesn't lack options moving forward. It probably will do the same thing at 168, maybe not with the same options that Usyk has, but it probably will do that with the winner coming out of this fight in September. This model truly does act like a league, and it gives with the fans what they want. It's the answer to the UFC's criticism of boxing, 
which is the best don't fight the best. But with the World Boxing Super Series, now they do. And if you look at the benefits, all the benefits that a division like Cruiserweight has gotten from this tournament, it's got a bona fide star in Usyk. It's got exposure for a lot of the other top fighters that wasn't there, several fight of the year candidates. It's got these guys paid. And in general, it's created a market for a division that previously didn't have a market. Like these benefits should get the 118 pounders and the 140 pound fighters really excited. Like this should be more money for the fighters win or lose just by participating in the tournament and having a decent showing. But can it translate to one of those three divisions I mentioned earlier, welterweight, middleweight, or heavyweight? Six months ago, I didn't think I'd be saying this, but the answer now could easily be yes. First, they need to come to the U.S., and this can't just be like a European Champions League type of thing. Like, it really can't. But with welterweight, welterweight could definitely work. I mean, Showtime could do this right now with their crop of welterweights. I mean, they could put the finals on pay-per-view to actually create a new pay-per-view star. Before everyone groans and says, oh, Al would never do that. It doesn't benefit at all. You know, it doesn't benefit him at all. I would say no. I would say there is a very strong argument to the contrary. That in fact, what Al and Showtime are both missing at that weight class is a bona fide pay-per-view star, and you will get exactly that coming out of the tournament. You certainly won't get that by having Errol Spence leave Thurman, Garcia, Broner, and Porter aside to fight a guy two, you know, two weight classes smaller than him on pay-per-view. You'd also get everyone at the weight class pretty paid like paid pretty well you generate a lot of excitement you'd almost guarantee that showtime would be the dominant tv network in the sport over the course of the tournament i mean if we're just talking errol spence it'd give errol spence a real platform to jump to the next level like let's i'm just assuming he's the favorite right now but you know so far for him it's like his opportunities, like I mentioned earlier, for big-name fights has been limited. Like, this takes that problem away completely. This would actually force Keith Thurman to fight regularly. It'd give Garcia, Porter, and Broner, and I guess three other welterweights, like, really big shots. Like, none of these guys are at pay-per-view level right now, so why not try and create one? It would make Showtime's boxing budget actually better, because if you had a pay-per-view star... You wouldn't have to pay all these guys tons of money to be on regular Showtime. You'd have an actual pay-per-view star that could anchor your programming and put your biggest fight not on the network, giving other opportunities for the network to put on big fights with that budget. You stretch the budget further, basically. Whoever wins, and this is is the best part, whoever wins has another built-in pay-per-view fight, either with Crawford or Pacquiao as a follow-up. Look, middleweight and heavyweight are tougher. There's no doubt about that. They're still doable. I'd say heavyweight is a little bit easier as long as you just make the concession that every Anthony Joshua fight is on pay-per-view in the UK, but that's already happening now anyways. As long as Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder are involved and on opposite sides of the bracket, I mean, it gets really interesting. If they're both involved... Eddie Hearn can basically do the same thing I mentioned above that the PBC could do. Like, he could do that right now with his heavyweights. Yes, there's some major roadblocks, primarily because everyone wants to fight AJ because right now he's paying opponents about 10x on what they normally get for any other fight. 
and you, you you'd really need to make an argument financially to Eddie Hearn that it's in AJ's best interest to join the tournament, which I'll admit, like, I don't know that you could do that yet. You probably need to prove to him that a tournament like this will make Joshua a star in the United States. I think it's obviously tough to do the tournament without Anthony Joshua because really it's you're not crowning the best at that point. Middleweight, I'll, I'll be honest, I think it's the toughest mostly because Canelo has shown little interest in fighting on any of the dates besides Cinco de Mayo and Mexican Independence Day weekend. But I truly believe that if you keep showing how this can make stars and build big, highly anticipated fights, then even the biggest stars, the Anthony Joshua, the Canelos, the Triple Gs, they would really need to consider joining. Like, especially if they saw they could make more money by joining. Remember, even with Canelo, his pay-per-view buy range is radically different when he fights a Liam Smith than when he fights a Golovkin. I know it'll take time with the biggest stars, but it's not a crazy thought. It's really not. The economic argument is always the most convincing, and if that argument can be made, it's totally viable. I know you can't make it right now for middleweight and heavyweight. I think you can make it for welterweight, though. I really do. So I'd say one step at a time. We started by taking the plunge doing well in Europe with the World Boxing Super Series, creating at least that sort of hipster effect in the United States by making it hard to actually watch the fights. In year two, we'll get it streamed on DAZN in the United States, and we'll get a similar weight class philosophy. Two divisions with lots of talent, but lacking a bona fide star. If this works out, then let's see a division based in the U.S. in season three. If we can't do welterweight, let's see light heavyweight or junior middleweight. There's a lot of recognizable names to U.S. audiences in those weight classes. Maybe that means you split up the TV schedule a bit rather than have one network do the whole thing, but other sports do this all the time. And emphasize the fact here that if you're not in the tournament, then you're the one losing out. Top Rank didn't put Zerto in the 168 version or Jose Ramirez in Season 2's 140 tournament because they owe dates to ESPN and they can't put their prime inventory in some unproven overseas tournament. We need some real diplomacy here. It's already bad enough that there were very little competitive options for Zerto at 168 while the tournament happening. Like, you got to work with top rank. You got to make sure that they can at least get an ESPN date for him in round one. Maybe ESPN Plus can get a feed for a Euro fight that he's in. DAZN made a great move to scoop up season two, but maybe you could involve others in season three. I know it'll get tricky for the finals. Like, what if at light heavyweight Kovalev and Stevenson are in the finals? Who gets it? HBO and Showtime. Like, if you're doing light heavyweight, like I posited earlier. I still don't have an answer for that. I guess I'd say if they can work out Mayweather, Pacquiao, and Joshua Klitschko, they could probably work this one out. I mean, it'd be more, you know, not the kind of money at stake, but it it's enough money where it's worth figuring it out. Overall, in conclusion, I really think the WBSS can work. I really think you can make it work. If they stop making silly mistakes like this cloud TV thing and the World Boxing Super Series keeps their strategy, they'll be able to repeat this. They'll be able to get better dollars for both the American and foreign TV entities. Like They'll create stars. They'll generate real public interest. I really think they can do it. I think it's the model moving forward. Maybe not for everything, but I think it can be a really fun thing 
you know, it's from the people that brought you the Champions League. I think they can do it like the Champions League do it, where they work with the actual teams in the big soccer leagues over in Europe, if you understand how that works. I mean, I think they can do that. I think they can make it work. So let's go to the preview section, where on August 4th, we have a pretty big HBO card with two light heavyweight title fights. Sergey Kovalev fighting Elider Storm Alvarez for the WBO title, and then Dmitry Bivol versus Isaac Chalemba for the WBA title. Kovalev is about a 5-1 favorite on most, fight, most sites, like maybe you could find it a little bit lower, and Bevel is a huge favorite. I've, I've seen him anywhere from sixteen to one to thirty to one. Also on that day on Fox, there's a PBC time by card where we have Devin Alexander fighting Andre Berto. Alexander is like a two or three to one favorite. Peter Quillen fighting Jillian Love. The odds aren't out yet for that. Sergey Lipinets is like a big favorite, like twenty to one against Eric Bonet. Marcus Brown, Louis Colazzo also on the card. Look, the HBO is a pretty good card. The PBC is several years late, quite frankly, for a lot of those fights. Uh, five years ago, I probably would have been all in on that, but now, I don't know. No major cards the following weekend, but the Facebook watch deal is starting with the August 11th card, Jojo Diaz fighting Jesus Rojas. Look, to me, this is just going to be interesting to see how Facebook watch televised the card, how it's presented to audiences, as I've said in previous episodes, they have different goals than most other distributors, and let's see what kind of product they put out. I'm excited to see what they're doing because Facebook has gone through a lot of ups and downs recently. You know, I've actually said this before on, on Twitter. Facebook's stock crashing that one day might actually be great for programming because what investors are basically telling Facebook is we need much more engagement. And... Facebook will, when they're facing problems like this, they will invest in improving that engagement. And live sports are are one of their strategies already for that. So let's see if they, let's see how this goes for them. Let's see if they take the plunge after this. Um, Been a longer episode, guys, than I thought, but, but this one, I felt like the World Boxing Super Series was worth it. I'm going to do ESPN next, I think. And I'm, and then I'm, I'm going I'm to also go over Golovkin and Canelo. I might do a Q and A as well because the DAZN debut is coming up soon as well. A lot of stuff happening in the boxing world. It's an exciting time to be doing this kind of stuff. Enjoy the fights. August fourth. I don't know what you're doing August eleventh. I'm getting out of town and going on a little weekend getaway. I guess you do that too. I don't know if Jojo Diaz is versus Rojas is, is worth staying in town and watching those kind of fights. But the great news is, if you, even if you want to watch them, you can do it on your phone, on Facebook Watch. It's really easy. That's the world we're headed towards, guys. That's the world we're already in. All right. Enjoy the HBO card, I guess. That's really the one that matters coming up. Hope you guys like the episode. Let me know how you feel. Um, I'm out. Did you get what you was looking for? With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.